24 hours to COVID freedom, folks. And you know what the first thing I'm going to do is? It's going to be two weeks from my second shot tomorrow. And you know what the first thing I'm going to do is? No, I'm not getting on a plane. I am going to the gym. I am going to go to the gym to take care of business and reclaim this body of mine, which, like many of you, has suffered in this lockdown. So first things first, there is an order of precedence. Take care of the body. And then I can go to the beach. Call me superficial. First things first. And then we will buy plane tickets. And then we will go to the beach. So I hope you're having a wonderful summer. The weather looks pretty awesome everywhere. I mean, in Canada, it's gotten extremely hot. I was messaging my parents, make sure you drink lots of water because what a scorcher in the West. Interesting things in the market. You know, the more I look at this, the more everything seems to be resting on the dollar, at least the inflation trade. I mean, crypto and commodities aren't that different. Crypto has crashed. But, you know, quick little thing on crypto. It's gotten really interesting in the last, I'd say, three days, not even the last 48 hours, because everything had sort of, you know, let's say crashed 50%. But what you started seeing, say, a week ago, was strength in Ethereum. All of a sudden, it just was perking up. It wasn't doing as badly as Bitcoin. It almost looked like it was going to lead the recovery, which is kind of a new thing. Usually, Bitcoin is the leader of all these things. And what you saw in the last 48 hours was particularly interesting. You saw the core DeFi protocols like Synthetics and Compound and Aave the core DeFi protocols, they have gone berserk. I mean, at least like, you know, 70 to 100% up in the last week. So what that tells me is there is money on the sidelines. You know what it looks like to me? It looks like some maybe Andreessen Horowitz, maybe someone like that. Someone is coming in and saying, this is cheap and they are buying. And if you're waiting for a pullback like I was, you know, after the it started to perk up and all of a sudden, oh, this is getting exciting over here. I'll wait for a pullback and then it goes up another 60% in two days. So very interesting dynamics in crypto. I almost want to call it a stealth bull market right now because it is crashing. It's in a bear. It is going, you know, it's 50% retracement. To me, it feels this is the animal spirits remain. There is a my sense is that there is a stealth bull market going on there. So very interesting. So I remain enthusiastic on that side. The precious metals and all the metals are, again, they're, it's like they're range bound on a higher level at these elevated prices. Uh, but, you know, gold is back above $1,800. Interestingly, the 10-year bond is at 1.425%. So that is lower, again, which would suggest more of a deflation than an inflation direction. The dollar, though, I think is at the core of all of this. It's like the whole inflation trade is trading off the dollar. And it, it looked like it bounced off a little bit of a upper resistance and it came down. And all of a sudden you saw crypto and metals 
kind of get a spring in their step. Should it break that resistance, though, and move higher, you could see the whole inflation trade back off. Now, final thing on this, let's look at oil, because I'm seeing headlines here on CNBC, oil prices could very easily top $100 a barrel, says ex-U.S. Energy Secretary. And this has pretty big implications for the miners because they were in the sweetest of spots in the last year where they had low input costs with energy being so low and high metal prices. So could margins come down with a higher oil price? And I would think they would. So really interesting things going on. Let's just quickly look at the oil price, $76.54. So it has definitely creeped up. It's up 1.85% on the day. And another headline here, oil rises further on hopes of tighter supply as OPEC plus talks abandon. So never a dull moment here. We have a very exciting episode lined up for you. We have this interview with Jake Klein, and I hadn't realized just how much this guy has accomplished. He's with Evolution Mining out of Australia, and you don't often hear about them previously, but they're starting to make waves in the Canadian mining scene the acquisition of what sounds like Gold Corp's former Red Lake project, and that was a company maker for Gold Corp. And they picked that up off Newmont, as far as I understand. So really interesting discussion, really level-headed guy. So that is coming up on today's podcast. And other than that, life continues on a beautiful summer pace here. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer, and we will retweet those people that tag us and are posting our links, so do not miss that opportunity. And we're also on Instagram at the Northern Miner, and we're also on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have a story by Henry Lazenby. Aluminum premium spike on planned Russian export tax. And so Russia has proposed introducing an export duty on aluminum as part of new measures to curb creeping inflation, sending regional premiums in crucial European markets soaring, a new analyst by Bank of America shows. The proposed measures will affect steel, copper, nickel, and aluminum. From August 1st until the end of December, the measures are expected to also compensate the state budget for increasing the costs of state-run projects. While this measure is temporary, Russia's finance minister Anton Silwanov and First Deputy Prime Minister Andrei Belousov advocate long-term changes to the Russian tax system starting next year in case global metal prices continue to stay materially above historical levels. B of A notes the measures might be slightly self-defeating. Europe is an important market for state miner Rusal, with a revenue share of 45%. Still, Russia is also a critical supplier to the EU, accounting for around 25% of aluminum imports. And we have a quote from B of A. While Russia's measures might influence LME prices to some extent, it is likely that the impact may be felt more in regional European premia, which have already rallied materially in recent months. It is also worth noting that the premia Russell receives for value-added products 
are usually higher than for standard grade LME traded aluminum. This might give Rusal an incentive to focus on VAP exports, value added product exports, which in turn might well give further support to standard grade ingot premia. Someone at B of A loves the word premia, is the takeaway on this article. Continuing, B of A's analysis found other countries have implemented a series of measures tackling domestic raw material markets in recent years. And we have another quote scrolling down the article. This may not sound significant, but we believe it is worth noting that the global aluminum market has been tightening as producers have been reluctant to invest in new capacity. As such, every ton counts. Well, I think B of A needs to take a few more English classes to sound a little less pretentious. My two cents on B of A. Okay. <laughs> okay, moving on. Let's see how Bloomberg does. Bloomberg NEF ups battery demand forecast. This is by Alicia Hyatt. Battery metal prices have seen a strong recovery in the first half of 2021. And in the first half, Battery Metals Outlook report, which forecasts demand to 2030, Bloomberg NEF projects markets for key battery metals to remain robust. Starting with projected total battery demand, the research company noted that its forecast for 2030 demand had risen by 35% over the last year. Now, Bloomberg NEF, now I assume Bloomberg NEF is like Bloomberg's strategic wing. I don't know what NEF stands for. Now, Bloomberg NEF expects demand to pass 2.7 terawatt hours per year in 2030, with a rise coming from higher expected demand for passenger electric vehicles. Going forward, if higher metal prices are sustained, the report says it could influence preferred battery chemistries, but not EV adoption overall. Automakers could choose to switch from high nickel chemistries to lithium iron phosphate chemistry, even though it would reduce performance of some EVs. However, quote, this would enable the electrification of transport to continue unabated. So continuing on, so it looks like Bloomberg NEF is seeing higher battery demand until 2030. And again, they raised their outlook. They raised it 35% over the previous forecast for 2030. So that is significant. Another metal story, strong gold and copper growth forecast as COVID disruptions subside. It's also by Henry Lazenby. Worldwide gold and copper production growth will resume in all earnest following the stop-start nature of COVID-19 disruption that miners have experienced at times during the past 18 months. Two new reports by Fitch Country Risk and Industry Research show. So gold and copper production are growing after the COVID-19 disruptions for gold. Fitch expects production growth in 2021 to achieve its fastest rate in three years. Over the medium term, 2021 to 2025, the global mine production growth remains strong as high prices by historical standards encourage investment and output. Fitch forecasts global gold production to increase from 109 million ounces in 2021 to 141 million ounces by 2030, averaging 3.2% annual growth. You know, what's kind of funny about that is that sounds like the rate of inflation, according to the Fed. You know, we're kind of going to be around 3.2% here, and that's the inflation of gold. So that is kind of interesting because we always see gold as the hard money, but there is more gold coming on the market on a regular basis. According to Fitch, 
This reflects an acceleration from the average growth of just 0.8% over 2016 to 2020. So we're going to see an inflation in the gold supply. After surging during the previous 10 years, China's gold output will stagnate over the coming decade. Declining ore grades will limit domestic investment and encourage Chinese firms to develop overseas projects increasingly. Skipping down a bit, in 2017, Zijin Mining produced 1.2 million ounces of gold. Remember, Barrick is 5 million ounces of gold a year, and Newmont, the top dog, is about 6 or 7 million ounces per year. So Zijin Mining is 1.2 million ounces a year, reportedly accounting for 10.2% of China's total output. Australia's gold sector will see modest production growth over the coming years, supported by a strong project pipeline, rising gold prices, and competitive operating costs. Fitch forecasts the country's production to increase from 10.8 million ounces in 2021 to 13.1 million ounces in 2030, averaging 2.2% annual growth. Canada and Australia are expected to lead the gold project pipeline each bringing between 175,000 and 200,000 ounces of annual primary output. Yeah, quickly on copper here, Fitch expects global copper mine production to expand by 7.8% year-on-year in 2021 as several new projects come online. I mean, with the COVID lockdowns, I'm not sure how much we can make of these numbers because it was such a wrench in the engine last year that if it's sort of like the GDP. If GDP is up 20% or whatever the case is, 5%, 10%, I'm not sure how much we can make of that on a lockdown. Continuing on, the growth rate is also affected by growth coming off a low base due to COVID lockdowns reducing output in 2020. As we were just saying, Fitch expects copper output over the medium term to remain strong as new projects and expansions come online, supported by rising prices and demand. Fitch forecasts global copper mine production to increase by an annual rate of 3.7% over 2021 to 2030. So 3.7% inflation in the supply, with yearly output rising from 20.2 million tons in 2020 to 29.4 million tons by the end of the decade. So this would sort of, I think, back Jeffrey Christian's view that the copper is there. It, It just needs a higher price, but it will be mined with higher prices. And finally, we have a story on Valet in Manitoba. They are committing $150 million to extend a couple of nickel mines there. So that's interesting. I mean, nickel is doing really well, so I guess we shouldn't be too shocked. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi. Valet is investing $150 million to extend by 10 years its mining activities in the Canadian province of Manitoba. The figure The company's largest single investment made at its Thompson Nickel operations will also be allocated to continuing exploration in the area to search for new deposits that hold the promise of mining well past 2040. Dino Otranto, chief operating officer for Valet's North Atlantic Base Metals Operations, said the investment was just one part of the company's ambitious Thompson turnaround story. Quote, We have a plan that will enable us to extract the Thompson Nickel resources for many years to come, end quote. The extension of Valet's current operations is planned as a two-stage project, with the first phase set to include critical infrastructure work, such as new ventilation raises and fans, increased backfill capacity, and additional power distribution. The company, the world's largest nickel producer, said that phase one changes are expected to improve current production by 30%. 
Quote, the global movement to electric vehicles, renewable energies, and carbon reduction has shone a welcome spotlight on nickel, positioning the metal we mine as a key contributor to a greener future and boosting world demand. Mark Travers, Executive Vice President for Base Metals, noted. And finally, the Thompson ore body was first discovered in 1956 by Valet, which was then known as INCO, following the adoption of new exploration technology and the largest exploration program to date in the company's history. Mining began in 1961, 60 years ago. So that is quite the mine. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on July 6th, the 10-year bond is trading at 1.425%. So that is down 0.06% last week. And gold is trading at $1,805.77 per ounce. That is $34 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $26.63 per ounce. That is $0.66 cents higher than last week. And platinum is trading at $1,113.11 per ounce. That is $35 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,844.79 per ounce. That is $175 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, Copper is trading six cents lower at four dollars and twenty-two cents per pound. Aluminum is trading three cents higher at a dollar fourteen per pound. Lead is trading at a dollar four, which is three cents higher than last week. Nickel is trading at eight dollars and twenty-three cents per pound. That is twenty-one cents lower than last week. And tin is trading twenty-two cents higher at fourteen dollars and ninety-four cents per pound. Cobalt is also higher at $22.91 per pound. That is $1.87 higher than last week. And zinc is trading $0.02 higher at $1.32 per pound. What do we see? A general move higher with small exceptions like copper and nickel, but everything else slightly higher. Again, seemingly range-bound on elevated prices. All eyes on the dollar. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Evolution Mining Executive Chairman Jake Klein in conversation with Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell at the Global Mining Symposium. And Jake Klein is a very interesting guy. He had some very interesting things to say about China, how it owns 20% of the debt of Africa, and how he actually prefers to be a mid-tier because he thinks it's the most profitable. And I think shareholders are going to love this guy. So I hope you enjoy it and we will see you on the other side. I'd like to introduce Jake Klein, the executive chairman and founder of Evolution Mining. Jake, thank you so much for joining us. We know you're super busy, so we really appreciate it. Pleasure, Trish. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners, Jake created Evolution Mining in 2011, and today it operates 
five wholly owned mines, four in Australia, and of course, more recently, the Red Lake mine in Canada, which it acquired in late 2019. Uh, the deal closed in April 2020, I think. And then more recently in mid-March, uh, Evolution acquired a second Canadian asset with uh, Battle North Gold and its Bateman project also in the Red Lake District. And prior to setting up Evolution, Jake was uh, in China for many years building Sino-Gold Mining, which listed on the ASX with a market cap of about 100 million Aussie dollars, and it was sold to Eldorado Gold in 2009 for about 2 billion. So Jake, obviously you've had a phenomenal career so far, um, and there's a lot to talk about, but I thought I'd first start off with your amazing um, first, uh, first half financial results for fiscal 2021, which they're really great. You basically banked over 50% of every ounce you produced in terms of EBITDA margin. Your return on equity was something like 18%. Your all instantaneous costs were under $1,000. And your dividend uh, was, I think, about $247 an ounce, which leads the sector. I mean, that was above Newmont and Barrick and, and the rest. So if I've left anything out, please fill us in. And what's your secret? Thanks, Chris. That's, um, that's a good summary. Um, we hope to be able to repeat it. That's going to be the real secret if we can do that. Um, it's, it's been all about a journey of trying to improve the quality of our assets and, and focusing mostly on margin and return on capital rather than on volume. So a much more focused strategy on, on margin over volume. And I think that's the differentiator that we're, we're not convinced that producing more gold and making uh, the same or less money is better than producing the most profitable ounces. Uh, and that's what Evolution's focus has been. Uh, and it's, you know, our job as a, as a company is really safely converting ounces in the ground into cash in the bank, and then deciding prudently how best to invest that cash. Uh, and if we can't invest it better and get a better return than our shareholders can, uh, we should be giving it back to our shareholders. So very proud of the fact that we've paid 16 consecutive dividends. Yeah, it's incredible. What, what's the secret to keeping the all-in-sustaining costs so low, though? I mean, I guess a lot of factors go into that. Keep improving the quality of your asset base. So in the last five or six years, we've sold three assets. Um, that's one way of improving the quality of your portfolio. Get rid of the, uh, the, 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 the assets which aren't performing that well and which are higher cost and keep improving the quality. So buy assets like Cal and Red Lake. Uh, the Ernest Henry deal has some copper credits. Uh, which has been great in a rising copper price environment, but you know, just focusing on that on that margin and all in sustaining cost, uh, not wanting to be the biggest, but wanting to be the best. Well, that was going to be my next question. I mean, you've always said you don't want to be a gold major necessarily. You want to be the best mid-tier company out there, and it seems like you're heading that way or already there. Uh, why not focus on the being a gold major? Why do you want to stay in that mid-tier space? I'd just say that we're, I don't think we are the best yet. Uh, we're trying to be the best, um, but we have a way to go still. We're, we're, we're doing well, but we do have a way to go. Look, if you look at the gold industry, we're, we're a bit of a strange industry, as you know. Uh, we all produce the same commodity. You can sell whatever you produce on, on a price that is quoted. And, and every ounce that you take out of the ground, you're actually reducing the core asset of your, of your company. So when you think about it, what are the ways which you can create a unique gold company and where do you really create value? Yeah, obviously producing that gold at low cost puts more money in the bank and that's great for everyone. Uh, but the real way you can deliver value for shareholders is by finding more gold. 
So where's the space that discovery can really make a, a difference? And in our view, that's in the mid-tier space. Mm-hmm. As you get bigger and you get over the kind of 2 million ounce a year production base, you're really in a, uh, in a statistically uh, lower place in terms of your ability to discover something because you've got to discover one of the mega deposits in the world to make a difference from a discovery perspective. Mm-hmm. So in that mid-tier space, you're producing enough gold so that you can fund your own growth, uh, you're able to pay some back to shareholders, uh, and you're in that place where discovery can really make a difference to the value of the underlying assets and the company. Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 mid tiers, in our view, are where the best returns to shareholders are made. Maybe we could turn to the Red Lake acquisition. I mean, you, you know, it's only been a year, really. Since, well, April 2020 was when the deal kind of closed, right? And it's, you've been dealing with the pandemic on top of that. But what have your successes been there so far? And what's your sort of goal in turning around that asset? Actually closed on April the 1st, uh, April Fool's Day. <laughs> oh. um, but it's been a, an amazing uh, almost 30 months uh, of owning the assets. Um, the two things or three things that really Red Lake has delivered to Evolution, which has changed our company and definitely improved the quality of the portfolio. The first thing is it's it's got a lot of gold. Um, it's got way more gold than we anticipated when we did our due diligence. It is one of the most prospective and well-endowed gold fields in the world. Yeah. Um, the second thing, and, and, and equally important, I think, is it has a, a, a motivated... Uh, engaged workforce with, you know, very highly skilled workforce, uh, very engaged, had lost a little bit of, of motivation. And, uh, yeah, the asset was undercapitalized. It was, it hadn't met its budgets for the last five years. Um, so it was looking for a refresh and the, um, the workforce has really embraced Evolution's ownership, a group that's prepared to invest in the future of the, of the operation. And it has a, an inspired workforce at the moment who really want to see and are passionate about seeing Red Lake success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third thing, which is equally critical, um, is it is in Canada. Uh, Canada is one of the great places to mine. And most importantly about that, it has a, a transparent uh, rule of law system which can be relied on. And that is critically important to, to, to miners like us. Uh, I go to sleep at night knowing that we're going to own the asset the next morning. Uh, and that's not every gold company can do that. Okay, so what's your uh, plan for the next 12 to 18 months at Red Lake then? So we put in place initially our first phase transformation of Red Lake, which was really focused around building up exploration again. It had been underexplored, then getting development in place. It was a mine that was depleting more rapidly than it was uh, it was putting ounces into reserves. So we've, we're doing that now. And we believe that the first stage of that transformation is 200,000 ounces at less than a thousand US dollars all in sustaining cost. We said that we thought that would take us three years and we're well on track to do that. Then having looked at the endowment of Red Lake and, and, and recalculated resources at 11 million ounces, we now have the view that we should set our sights higher and our longer term ambition is now three to 500,000 ounces. And that will really restore Red Lake uh, to being one of the premier Canadian gold mines uh, around again uh, and restore its place because it was there. So that's the that's the plan. We're very confident we can do that. As I say, it's got gold, uh, a lot of gold. It's got a, a workforce that wants to make it happen. 
uh, and it's in a, a, a legal framework and structure and, and re regulatory system uh, that allows you to be confident of your ownership. And then, of course, the second acquisition with Battle North Gold. I mean, you know, there are some people who say you bought that mainly for the second mill, but but there is a lot of upside there. You know, the feasibility study that was just done, I think an eight-year mine life, 74,000 ounces of gold a year. I mean, anyway, what's your view on, on that asset and why did you buy it? So, so we'd actually looked at Battle North a couple of years ago before we acquired Red Lake. Battle North had looked at Red Lake and, and, and were the underbidder for Red Lake. So it was clear from both uh, parties' perspective that a consolidation made sense. Uh, their leases are contiguous to our leases. Mm -hmm. Some of their ore bodies plunge into ground, which we own at Red Lake. Uh, and it really is consolidating the district into, into single ownership. So uh, that was the primary motivation. It, it, is, you know, it was only really divided as a result of tenure, uh, not as a result of geology. So it is one geological system. Uh, yes, it, there is another mill, um, and, and it, we, we, in our aspirational goal of three to 500,000 ounces, need more milling capacity. So that does solve that solution. But really, it's about consolidating the district uh, and, and, and creating it you know, with that. Uh, our view is that we will be mining gold there in 20 years' time very profitably. Are you going to take a bit of a breather from M&A then? I mean, you've often said that, you know, you don't want to buy things just for growth's sake. You always, you're, yeah. the best way to, to grow is organically. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your best organic opportunities in Australia then at the, at the mines you've got there. Our best standout opportunity is Cal, uh, where we acquired that mine from Barrick in 2015. At that time, the mining was scheduled to close in 2020, and it was uh, going to process low-grade stockpiles till 2024. It had 1.6 million ounces in reserves. We have mined over a million ounces very profitably. It's repaid all of its capital, uh, the, the purchase price capital. Uh, and we now have 3.9 million ounces in reserves due to discovery. I should add that we do our reserves at 1,450 Australian dollars an ounce, which is a very conservative number. We do that purposefully again to underpin that margin over, over volume approach that we want every ounce that we mine to be very profitable. And if, if ounces don't make it into that, that, that margin approach, uh, leave it in the ground because if the gold price is going up, uh, they will be profitable at some point in time later. Uh, but it's about margin and return on capital. So Cal has a clear pathway from its current about 220,000 ounces of gold production a year to 350,000 ounces. And we're almost at the end of a feasibility study for the underground mine. And Ernest Henry is a mine which uh, we have an economic interest in. Uh, it's operated by Glencore. They did a terrific job. Uh, but that has real mine life extension opportunity as we continue to drill below the current reserves. Would you agree that it's the best time to invest in gold in the last 15 years? I mean, with the incredible amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus that's going on, I mean, you're going to get inflation, but gold's always a store of value. I mean, Bank of America is forecasting $3,000 an ounce gold. Where do you stand on all of this? Well, it felt better last year when uh, the world seemed to be going uh, really downhill quickly and gold was going, you know, was, was was materially high. And Australian dollars, gold touched $2,800 an ounce and it's back down to $2,300 an ounce, which is still amazingly high. I think we as gold miners have to really put it in context. When I started my career, gold was $300 US an ounce. Uh, no one ever thought it would be above $1,800 US an ounce. So we need to get sort of some context around that. 
it is a great time to be a miner. If you look at since 1971, when um, the US left the gold standard, uh, US national debt has gone up 70 times and the gold price has gone up 50 times. Uh, so the gold price longer term, as you correctly say, there's this huge fiscal and monetary stimulus. The long-term trend is upwards. But as a gold producer, uh, you're going to get volatility within that upward trend. Uh, and it's again, it's our view that as custodians of shareholders' capital, we really need to be focused on that return on capital yeah, rather yeah. than investing on the basis that the gold price is going up because shareholders can do that themselves. And you've always said that evolution wants to be resilient at any gold price. I mean, within, right? It has to be because in the life of a mine, even if you believe that the upward trend is, is, is in, intact, and I think it is, uh, there is volatility. You know, a couple of, a, a few months ago, the gold price was two or $300 higher. You know, now it's at, at 1800 US dollars an ounce. We as an industry have an amazing capacity, in my view, to make life difficult for ourselves. Okay. Um, we reduce the cutoff grade, uh, and that compresses the margin, results in misallocation of capital. And I'm, I'm I think it, it means that investors are, have been, consistently disappointed at the outcomes which gold companies have been able to deliver. You know, if you look at the returns in, in the gold sector over the last decade, uh, they haven't reflected what the increase in the gold price has been. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a bit of an indictment on the gold sector. We, we need to get better at recognizing that, yes, we're in the gold space and it is an upwardly trending gold price. But our fundamental job is delivery of, of returns on capital appropriate for the risk that we're taking. Uh, and you know, that depends on jurisdiction. It depends on geology. But we need to get more disciplined on delivering returns on capital. Uh, can you talk about copper a little bit? I think it's about 15% of your revenue. Are you thinking at all about doing some pure play copper stuff or you're happy where you are? We're happy where we are. I mean, I think, again, it, it goes to you know, what investors want. They're investing in evolution as a gold company. Uh, rule of thumb would say that up to 20% of copper revenue would be okay. If we happen to discover a major copper deposit, that would be good. We wouldn't say no to that. Uh, but we're not out there actively looking for uh, copper plays. But copper's role in, in sort of the whole decarbonization future that we're looking at. I mean, and, and you at, uh, I think it breached $10,000 a ton last week. I mean, copper's hot. It is. And um, if you believe that we're in a cyclical industry, you shouldn't be buying when it's hot. You should be <laughs> buying when it's cooler. And again, that kind of goes to our philosophy around, you know, lot, middle of last year, we were thinking that the gold price was hot and opportunities were overpriced. A bit of headwinds into the gold price. People are feeling a little bit more uncertain. Well, maybe that's where there's more opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're buying when a market's red hot like copper at the moment, you're kind of hoping a lot that either you've got so, you're seeing something that the market's not seeing or that the price is going to go even higher. I wanted to take you back to your years in China for a moment, if if uh, if you will. So you're probably one of the best placed CEOs to talk about sort of the geopolitical tensions we're seeing with US-China relations, Australia-China relations, and the impact that's having on the, on the sector as a whole. What are your thoughts on where those relationships will be in the next year or two? And I think it's, it's, we're entering a really challenging time. Again, if you put it in context and you went back 20 or 30 years, there was a general assumption uh, by Western liberal democracies that as economic 
uh, prosperity came to China and it globalized more, um, then political change would occur. Um, and that's why I think there was a general sentiment that the concessions and overlooking some of China's transgressions with respect to IP and various things were worth it because at the end of the day, a globalized and engaged China was a great outcome to have. And, and if you reflect on it in a kind of sober and reflective uh, perspective, um, that hasn't occurred in terms of the political change. Uh, today, the Chinese Communist Party is probably stronger than it has ever been. And that assumption hasn't been right. Um, so you're starting to see definitely an increased level of um, recognition of that. Uh, I think um, last night I saw the Secretary of State of the U.S. in you know starting to use much more um, aggressive language with respect to China. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't that that competitive confrontational um, tone hasn't changed since the presidency changed. Uh, in fact, probably you could say it's it's escalated. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a political perspective, it looks like we're into a very competitive uh, framework going forward. Hopefully that doesn't lead to anything catastrophic, but there is a higher risk of that. When you say, what does it mean for a country like Australia and a, and a and commodity like gold um, in terms of uh, companies, China has recognized that it is short of raw materials and it suited China to buy those raw materials from countries like Canada and Australia uh, for a long period of time, particularly Australian iron ore. And it's been un- an underpinning economic prosperity of Australia for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I am of the view that China has been uh, executing a very premeditated strategy that it needs to diversify its its sources of the and 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 access to those materials and has been aggressively pursuing uh, developing countries with debt diplomacy. It owns 20% of the debt in Africa, particularly the resource-rich countries. It's transformed its own uh, metals and mining companies into formidable competitors. Zijin Mining is now the second or third largest gold company in the world. So I think it sees its next focus or the next generation of opportunities and access to materials as being largely in developed countries where it has much more diplomatic influence and its companies are, are, are very competitive. Um, and that's going to mean it's going to be more difficult for companies who, who rely on Western capital providers. Also, just a trend that we're seeing is uh, more secondary listings, either on the LSE or on the TSX. But you've often said in the past that you don't see the value in a secondary listing necessarily because it doesn't result in extra liquidity. And just what are your thoughts on maybe a secondary listing for evolution? I still think it's difficult. It adds a lot of complexity to the company. I, I have been involved as a non-executive director in a company that was had a, a Toronto listing and an Australian listing, and the the additional uh, compliance with regards to 43101s and and JORC compliance uh, makes it onerous. So unless you get to a scale where it really is warranted, I, I I'm not sure that the benefits outweigh the the costs and the and and additional compliance uh, needs. Oh, I wasn't sure because with the acquisitions in Canada you've made, I thought maybe a listing on the TSX would make sense. Well, maybe if we keep growing in Canada, um, we'll move our primary listing to to Canada. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll just maybe close with, you know, you've been in this industry for a long time and a lot of our viewers are young people just starting out. Are there any 
sort of tips you can give them, lessons that you wish you had learned earlier or had learned about before you got into the business uh, that you could share with them? Any cautionary tales? It's an amazing industry. Uh, you know, I never started out thinking I'd be in the mining industry. I'm an accountant uh, originally, uh, a long time ago. Uh, and it's taken me to places where I couldn't have thought of going and, and, and wouldn't have, I, I, I'd pay money to go there on holiday. Um, but probably the industry is best described to me by a, a, a saying I learned in, in China uh, or heard in China, which is uh, sweet torture. Uh, that is what this industry is going to deliver to you. And, and therefore, humility is a very important part of this, of being in this, in this sector. You know, just when you think everything is going right, things go wrong. So resilience is really critically important. Uh, making sure you're humble about your successes because at some point in time, something's going to go wrong, which you didn't anticipate. Um, and making sure you really are always scanning the horizon for both opportunity and for challenges. But yeah, at the end of the day, this is an industry where, in my view, sort of opportunity doesn't come gift-wrapped. Uh, you have to go out on the ledge and, and figure out a way to jump off the ledge, whether it's in your own personal career where you're needing to move into another space but challenge yourself, always a company, uh, you know, when you're sitting around a board table and you're thinking about an acquisition, there are always more reasons why not to do something than why to do something. Mm -hmm. And at Evolution and my, and my personal um, value system, you know, define your values. We, we're very focused on that at Evolution. Uh, don't, don't go uh, across them and don't breach them. Don't uh, damage your reputation ever. But at the end of the day, you have to take risk. And this is a business about geological and financial risk. And you need to get comfortable taking that. Well, thank you so much, Jake. Really appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thanks, Chris. Really okay. appreciate you having me. Thanks. Sweet torture. I have never heard that one before. But, you know, he, he said it as someone who knows. That, that was probably an expression he made out of raw experience. So thank you once again for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And we have lots of exciting stuff coming up for the summer. I hope wherever you are, you're having a wonderful time. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. And until next week, take care.